Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, We very recently were talking on Brussels Sprouts about Nord Stream 2 and what it means for U.S.-Germany relations and transatlantic relations more broadly. Uh, And today we're going to turn our attention back to Germany with a focus on Germany's upcoming elections in September 2021 and what the changing of the guard with Angela Merkel stepping down as chancellor will mean for German politics. Um, The popularity of the Green Party in particular has allies wondering what green leadership might mean for Germany's security and defense policy. And to tackle that and discuss these issues in a post-Merkel Germany, we're really excited to welcome Claudia Major and Christian Moling back on the podcast. Both have made previous appearances. So welcome back, both of you. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Thanks very much. Yep, just very quick bios for both. Uh, Claudia Major is head of the International Security Division at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin, and her work focuses on security and defense policy and issue uh, and in the transatlantic context. And Christian Molling is the research director of German of the German Council on Foreign Relations, where he also heads the security and defense program. So here we go. Um, Maybe we can start just with a very general generic question, which is if you were going to explain to a U.S. audience the significance of September's election, um, what would you say? And can you give us a little bit uh, of context of what's in store for the months in the run up to the election and the coalition building process? So kind of as we get closer to the election, what's on tap? What should we expect? Um, How do we make sense of what's happening? So, Claudia, maybe we can start with you. This this election really is a major change for Germany. Um, and I, I guess it will also be a major change for Europe, just because Germany is one of the biggest players there. Why it's such a big change? Um, the first is that Angela Merkel will not run again. So after 16 years of Angela Merkel as a chancellor, uh, there will be another one. And 16 years is a very long time where she really was... Um, she shaped German policies, European policy, left the country through uh, numerous crises. So this is really a major change in the way policy is done in Germany. Um, another change is that it's very likely to have the Green Party in government again. The last time it was uh, 1998 until 2005. So it has been quite a while. The party has changed, a generational change, also changed a little bit in content. So um, this is going to be very interesting also because we are very likely to have for the first time ever a conservative Green coalition. It's not yet sure, obviously, but it's very likely as it stands now with the polls. We are also having a, a big change in the parliament. So many parliamentarians will change. We have a generational change, which might come also um, with a change in positions. So overall, the, the setting in Germany is going to change. And in the same time, this is happening in a moment where the international framework from the US up to China and in Europe itself is changing considerably. So this is... That's why I meant it's not only exciting for Germany, but it's going to be exciting uh, for Europe too. Also, little footnote, um, because we're going to have the French presidential elections just six months later in April 2022. So the two countries who have a very strong impact also on European policies uh, will change. So I I expect um, very interesting times ahead uh, in Germany and in Europe. 
Christian, do you want to give us a little walk through, you know, through what we should expect in the months ahead of the election and maybe in the in the coalition building process shortly after the election? Yeah, I think the <clears throat> the interesting thing will be, uh, and that's something where especially the Americans should try and hold their breath, is there will be a lot of topics on security and defense, but especially those who are prone to scandals. So in the German domestic audience, if you throw 2% defense spending in, if you throw exports in, if you throw uh, nuclear in, then everybody will go up and say, oh! So this is, these are not our structural problems that we have really in defense. There are many other topics that are kind of really, uh, are kind of giving our headaches. But the broader audience uh, is willing to accept and dis discuss that. So this is something you should definitely be be prepared to, to have that. Um, there's a lot of noise that will come out of this. Um, and of course, one has to react to it, but it's not the, um, it's not the let's say, the, the, the very rational discussion that you, you will see at, at that time. People or parties will use these topics to distinguish themselves from others um, because it doesn't cost you votes if you, if you do that. Uh, especially not if you're more on the left wing side, then these these are topics that uh, you at least don't don't pay by by voting uh, by voting points on that. Uh, then after the uh, September 26, uh, basically the, the big and interesting time comes in the kind of some weeks will happen uh, between the election and then the coalition agreement, in which all the short notes need to be written down and uh, need to be distributed among those who are leading uh, the negotiations on the different topics. Um, so there will be also, again, a lot of, uh, not noise, but whispering, I would guess, more around on what could be in the coalition agreement here and there, and what are the deals that would be struck among the coalition agreement. This takes a lot of time. Compared to the Americans, um, where my impression at least is, you use your time in the think tank world also to prepare the next government program. We just wake up and say, oh, it's a new government that we have to prepare for. Uh, now we have to write down our notes. So we are not so systematic on these things, um, or we, we take our time on this by, by a kind of a habit. We should do, because Claudia already alluded to the um, tremendous amount of pressure that any new government will have to respond to, because we haven't dealt, dealt with these things uh, the last decade. Now it's the next government who just have to respond to the pressure, but it can really take us until the next uh, uh, until the next year until this government is formed. Especially, these are always coalition agreement, uh, coalition governments. So it's not one party; it's at least two parties, maybe even three. So that makes it even more complicated to have um, a negotiation on the government agreement. Um, maybe just just a word on that. Um, Christian just described the several steps we have. I think we can easily put it into three steps. We have selection campaign, um, and we are likely to talk about things, not the things that matter in defense, in German defense. We have a wrecked procurement system. Uh, we don't agree on the use of force. We don't know what the role of Europe is. We don't know. We don't really agree on how to deal with Russia and China. This is not going to be the big topic. The big topics are going those on which you can easily have a nice escalation, nuclear um, arms exports and that. And this is the sad moment because we would need much more debate, but we're not going to have it. So first election campaign until September. Then we have some negotiations, September until maybe Christmas, maybe spring next year. 
That could take a little bit longer than in the past. It depends on how many parties have to agree. And then we have the third step, the first months or first year of the new government, where the nice policy proposals hit reality, and that is going to be a pretty painful process for Germany and our partners. But if you look at it from that point of view, we have more than a year of probably rather strategic inertia, I would say. Um, second point, um, I think what is really interesting also for non-German listeners, that Germany always have coalition governments. No party is strong enough. And that means you need to find a compromise. That means even if the Greens would go into a government as the strongest party, which I don't think, but even if they go in pretty strongly, it doesn't mean that they can get everything or that everything is possible. You need to have an agreement. You need to find compromise. Uh, and then it's a question of how, who is getting what ministries. And if you want to deliver good defense, uh, you need foreign affairs, defense, uh, finances, development aid. They will all have different political party ministers. Um, so don't think that the pure green or pure conservative con uh, positions will um, will will take place in the end. It's really a system very much based on compromise. I think this is really important to underline. Boy, that's that's fascinating, and I'm, I'm and I think what you just were saying, Claude, is so important for the Americans to listen to because we're so used to having um, one party or another. But I have to say, I was fantasizing a little bit about. Uh, you know, maybe we would uh, have a coalition here at some point. How how would that work? <laughs> Given how polarized we are, oh my God, I just can't imagine. But anyway, but but let me ask you all. I think um, certainly Americans of a certain age, uh, or Americans in general who follow um, the history over the past uh, number of decades, when they hear the word green you know, that, that they're green, then um, it really, you know, you think of Bider meinhof gang, you think of tree huggers, you think of, uh, you know, marches in Berlin carrying, you know, Pershing twos, you know, and, and burning them. I mean, you think of, you think of that kind of thing, but as you pointed out, Claude, in starting off that the greens have changed. Uh, and uh, certainly over the past 10 years or so, you hear different things out, uh, out of their, um, on their platforms and things that the politicians say, but not, but most Americans who follow these things uh, probably haven't heard that. So how would you all describe the, the, the Greens now, the typical Green politician, the Green politician that you might see in government, maybe as defense minister, maybe foreign minister, maybe the chancellor, um, what would this Green, um, how would you describe this green to an American? Is it Biter Meinhof, uh, you know, running around, or is it someone who is uh, matured and come of age, and they um, and they're actually on a suit and tie, and they look like they could be CDU or SPD? Or so, how would you describe <laughs> a modern green? Yeah, let me, and let me add, like just layer one little piece on there too, because we also hear about the different factions in the Green Party and this Fundi and the Rialo divide. Is that still salient in the party? And how would you describe, again, for people who don't know internal domestic German politics and, and you know, getting all the way down to that level within the Green Party, what, what how would you describe some of these different factions within the party? Because I think what we keep hearing is like you're saying through the coalition process and who gets different ministries, it will also matter which 
part of the Green Party some of these representatives are plucked from? Um, so I don't know. It's a big question. But how, how, would, how do you describe the Greens and some of these different divisions within? Starting with the green in the street. If you met a green person on the sidewalk, <laughs> you know, long hair and beads, or would they be in a suit? Um, maybe you just think about the um, prime minister of uh, Baden-Württemberg, who is a green. So one of the countries in southern Germany, one of the really wealthy countries where you have car industry and, and, and all that, you know, um, where, where we from Berlin always tend to think like, wow, this is, you know, that's really nice and pretty and, and clean and all that. Um, you would probably think that he could as well be a conservative. Um, so and this maybe shows that the Green Party has changed but it covers really, really a large ground. To just maybe, uh, maybe I start and then, and then Christian jumps in. Um, I think what is, what is interesting is that they started in the 1980s really as the anti-party party. They really wanted to be totally different, anti-system, um, pacifist, anti-NATO. They wanted NATO to be dissolved. They wanted the US weapons to, to disappear from Germany. So they were really the anti-party party. Um, then they had some painful lessons, particularly when they entered government 1998 until 2005. That was what I would probably call a transformative experience. Um, Joschka Fischer, the then Green Foreign Minister, took Germany to the Kosovo War, um, which was the first military deployment um, uh, ever then for, for, for Germany uh, after the end of World War II. So this was really an enormous step. And this decision at that time, the Kosovo decision, almost destroyed the party from the inside and led to enormous debate in the party, but nice side effect also in the German public. And it was very important at that time that the Green Party took that debate to the German uh, public. And we all discussed, I still remember that, uh, whether it was good or not, right decision or not, and whether we should do it. So that was a major step. So moving from a part anti-party party to a party where the foreign minister took Germany to a military operation. And if you look and where they're standing now, they have become an almost, almost uh, moderate party. They have an increasing electoral success and they really appeal to the, I would say, center of the society. Their main topic, and this you can see in the current debates, is really climate change. But very quickly after that comes social questions and European foreign policy. So the, the kind of traditional question with which this party started in the 1980s are still very much there. So we could have a look at those issues which kind of where they have remained true to their founding principles, things like um, foreign policy based on human rights, peace through multilateralism, diplomacy, very attached to international law, very committed to development cooperation. Um, they have an idea of foreign policy as a kind of holistic, comprehensive policy that has civilian tools that very much insist on civilian crisis prevention, civilian tools. So this is the kind of really kind of core basis, desire for the rule of law and the desire for nuclear disarmament, which is still very strong. But, and this is where it's getting interesting, they have moved on certain issues compared to the early days. Um, the one is that Bundeswehr deployments, so deployments of the armed forces are now um, accepted. They are scrutinized very closely, but then they decide yes or not. It's not on principle against it. 
So they accept that military deployments can be necessary. NATO is accepted. And Annalena Baerbock, in a recent interview with the Atlantic Council, said, I'm a transatlanticist, which is a pretty strong statement. Um, so if you look in the draft party program, uh, NATO is accepted as an indispensable actor for European security. They also accept to securely fund the German military. So they have remained true to the core principles, but they have moved, moved on others. So what we have now is a convinced pro-European party, very, very strong European focus that recognizes the transatlantic relationship still. Very tough on authoritarian powers. Here you feel the, you, you see the, the kind of history of the rule of law. So very strict on China, Russia, Hungary. Um, and while they focus on civilian development tools, they recognize military tools. So the question then, which I often hear from outside Germany, are they the enfant terrible of German defense policy? Are they the odd one out? And the interesting bit is if you only look at the German political landscape, they are not. Many positions that the Green Party defends, for example, strong on nuclear disarmament, the Liberals and the Social Democrats want the same thing. The Greens are still not happy with the 2% goal agreed in NATO. They call it absurd because they don't agree with the metric. But honestly, the metric really is not really convincing, if I might say. Um, and the Social Democrats have always been very critical on the 2%. Um, so I think their arms approaches, uh, arms export is another example where the Greens are very strict on arms export, but the Social Democrats have been strict too. So within the German political debate, they have strong positions, but they're really not the odd one out. What is interesting is that Germany as a country might be the odd one out in Europe. So the positions that Germany sometimes defends in European security and defense debates, be it in NATO or the EU, you hinted at Nord Stream 2, uh, you hinted at the restraint on military issues. This is where it's getting difficult. So in Germany itself, the Greens are not that special. But if it comes to the role Germany plays in Europe, in NATO, this is where actually we are more of an enfant terrible or odd one out um, than the Greens are. So I think this is, this is interesting. Last point, what I really, I think it will be difficult if the Greens were to enter the government, there will be heated debates on nuclear issues, on arms exports, on defense spending, on all that. But remembering the 1999 Kosovo decision, we might have a broader debate. We have all been calling for a more strategic debate in Germany for years, and it didn't really make progress. A little bit, but you know, a little bit late, a little bit not enough. If the Greens were to carry those difficult controversial topics to a broader public, if they debate it inside their party, take it to the public and openly talk about arms exports, whether nuclear deterrence is good or not good, what is Germany's role in nuclear sharing? If we would have a public debate on those issues, I would be very optimistic that the strategic debate in Germany would make progress. A little bit like in 1999 with the Kosovo decision. So again, I'm, I'm actually... I'm, I'm a bit optimistic um, if I look to, to the autumn and the elections. Christian, I mean, you can pick up if you want to add anything to that. But I think one of the big questions, so it's partially on the Greens, but maybe just broadening a little bit to German foreign policy after Merkel. I mean, there's, I think, 
there's been some disappointment in the West with, with where Germany has been. And we saw, you know, for example, there was a lot of talk, talk during the Trump administration or a lot of hope about the Franco-German engine, that that was going to be the thing that would kind of step into the void and drive policies and issues forward. And that really didn't take off the way I think many people had hoped. Um, even now with the Biden administration, I think there's been a much cooler response or in Berlin than many of us had hoped for. You know, a lot of the things that this U administration come, came in hoping it knew it needed to restore relations with Germany. And we've seen some attempts, for example, reversing the decision to withdraw troops and even upping um, that number in Germany. Um, there's, you know, more talk about not forcing Europe to have to pick a side between the United States and China. There's been U.S. signals about 2% to say that maybe it's not the best yardstick and that there's um, some openness to having a discussion about that metric and whether it needs to be updated. So I think there's been these gestures coming from Washington. And the sense here is that they really haven't been reciprocated. And so I want to I want to ask whether you think this election will be a turning point um, with whatever coalition comes in, do you think it's possible that we will see improvements, not just in the U.S.-Germany relations, but a Germany that steps in and breathes some more life into the transatlantic relationship? Or if you think we'll be stuck a little bit in that status quo? I think it's, um, uh, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding in, between Berlin and Washington, how the Germans responded to the uh, very open and visible gestures from Washington and the big fear in the chancellor's office was um, to, to establish or to, to give reason to the fear that all the other Europeans had at that time, that the Germans would go for a special relationship with the Americans. Um, so the chancellor was very much on offering a European response to the U.S., compared to a bilateral response. That was the kind of the driving thing behind the silence. And that's always, it's a bad thing if you have silence and you can't explain it or it's maybe not, not heard. That's so I think this is something that uh, definitely needs to, there should have been a loud silence, I guess, uh, better explained of what is happening here. Because otherwise, and especially Paris was reacting to that in a way to say, okay, now the Germans are basically leave our love behind and uh, go with the Americans, which wasn't true of me. That has never been true. But the other change, this I would expect to change, but there will always be the attempt by whatever next chancellor is to give a European response still, be it a conservative chancellor or a green chancellor for different reasons. Second, who whoever comes into office after Merkel, will have a hard time to establish this as a center of power as Merkel has done. I mean, the chancellor's office is by no means comparable to uh, the US presidential office, nor to the Elysee Palace or the French uh, presidency, because this is a federal system and power is distributed across different, different levels of the political system. Whoever comes after Merkel will take years to consolidate his or her power in this system. The ministers are very, very strong. And because you have a coalition agreement, there's also party reasoning behind having strong ministers. So you basically need to accumulate power at the beginning. So running then at the beginning to the next chancellor 
um, misses out the power relationship that we have. On the Franco-German side, um, this is an this is an on-off love affair. Um, I'm not going too much in, into details here. What is a, a strong argument from from the German as well as from the French side is a to keep a certain degree of a defense industrial base in Europe. And I share the fear that if we would only go transatlantic, we would lose a, a reasonable uh, amount of, uh, of our industry here, which would m make us a weak partner. And that's something that the Americans, even from an industrial point of view, maybe not necessarily want to have. Because then if tides change again, we would be vulnerable to offers that come from the East. And that's not what you want. I guess that's something where we basically have to also rebalance the industrial technological side of our relationship. Um, and that's something where the French may have to learn some of their lessons on, on these sides as well. But all in all, I guess the, the first response from Berlin is hopefully something that very loudly explains to the Americans that they shouldn't worry about Berlin being on the American side because that's something... I feel here very strong. Everybody is not only happy that it's no longer Trump, but there is a, uh, a look forward into a constructive agenda once we are ready. And the problem is here, we have the tendency to never be 100% ready. And that's kind of, you know, starting on the fly is not a German thing. Uh, so please keep knocking on our door. Uh, to make us running out of the out of this door, even if we are not fully dressed. Could could I jump in? I know Claude, I'm sure, has something to say, but I I just that's fascinating, and it just occurred to me, Andrea. Uh, I don't know about you, but I you know your point about the deafening silence. The reason was because you know Germany didn't want to reply as a, in a bilateral way, Germany to the U.S., but wanted to stay in the EU fold and have it be an EU response. That is just not the lens in Washington and the way we look on things. It's fascinating. I, when you said that, I got I know, it. Yeah. But I tell you, in Washington, the instinct is not that. We are, we, including in the campaign and among the Democrats who are in power now, and we think about Germany, we think of Germany in terms of this a bilateral thing. Uh, and so, uh, and, and, and I, uh, and so I tell you, it was really just misunderstood for the, the I, and, and, and there was a lot of, you know, at least among the small group that were watching, I think there was a, a lot of head scratching and, and, and conclusions that were wrong. So what I'm, what I, and, and I think the point too, of your point about the chancellor, not having certainly in the beginning, the power that Merkel, that we've grown used to with Merkel. Hmm. No, I think with Washington, the lens also is the chancellor will come in and will be just as powerful because that's what we're used to with American presidents. And so, you know, Andrea, I think we need to have a tutorial in Washington on what to expect, because I just as I'm sitting here thinking of all of our friends in the government, Jim, that's what this podcast is. I know, we're going to need a two hour special <laughs> and we're going to force everyone to listen, because I think there is going to be a lot of talking past each other and a lot of misinterpretation as we get used to one another, because there really is a head of steam up in the new administration among all of our friends. We know who they are who really, including me, that we really want to jump in and get our relationship back to where it traditionally is. Yeah. Um, and I think we're going to just, um, we're so eager, you know, we're, we're misreading and not, and, and, and we're not, our head's not in the right place for the reasons that you have raised. 
uh, I just think it's fascinating. And then the last point is, uh, and then then over to Claude. But but, the, but my point, your your point on defense, the defense industry. You know, God, I have worked that for so many years, trying to figure a way to get things balanced right. Uh, but I could, and because I think your point is absolutely right. I do think we've got an administration that is that understands that. But do we have the tools really? I've always felt that the, the government getting involved in that usually makes it worse. You've let industry do it. <laughs> Industry can figure it out better than we can, I think. But anyway, I think your point on uh, industry is is absolutely correct. But but Claude, over to you. Actually, I just thought so. We have a special edition on German politics ahead. Um, but just maybe maybe it helps to you know this kind of intercultural communication or this kind of understanding what the Germans want. You know, it, it, it's not easy in the transatlantic context, but even Franco-German, it's not easy, you know, and we are supposed to be the closest friends, allies, whatever you want, partners in Europe. And even between France and Germany, after so many years of friendship and so many exchange officers and programs and everything, friendship treaties, we still struggle to understand each other, which is one or we, we think we know each other, but actually we don't. Um, when it comes to political systems, to the structure of the industry, uh, to our strategic cultures, uh, our ambitions, we still um, talk past each other, if I might say. So honestly, I'm not really surprised that there have been misunderstandings. But I think that this really understanding what the other wants, be it in Europe or transatlantic, is really important. Um and, and I totally agree with Christian. There was a big fear that Europeans would start a beauty contest. Um, so there was really a focus on let's Europeans, you know, find a joint answer, and particularly Germany, because everybody feared like the first phone call would be to get in. Um, so I think that's that's really important to understand this European dimension and this European priority. Um, it's a very old quotation, and uh, you probably know it, but I still say it. There's this famous call quotation that German interests and European interests are just two sides of the same coin. And this is still, still very much valid. And if we kind of circle back to the Greens, this is what you find also in the green ideas on foreign security and defense policy. Strong Europe, very strong European conviction. And um, it's one of the priorities they really want to follow. Um, that a European foreign policy, which may be um, put the priorities on other areas. For example, being much tougher on China than it's currently um, the case. Being much tougher on things like rule of law, human rights, European resilience. Um, so, but just to underline again, Europe is really, it's really something um, which counts a lot. Maybe not always as we would like to see it, but it really does count a lot. Maybe one thing on, on the question of uh, Germany and the EU are kind of two sides of the same coin. I think this is a this is a stereotype uh, that the diplomatic corps was paying to kind of attention and tribute to quite a lot, but I think it's it's partly wrong. Simply because I mean that that was our we didn't have have a good narrative, and you know people clinched into that. Um, but I mean we had a Germany had a a particular China policy, to say the least, a particular Russia policy, to say the least. Um, so this is something where I wonder, uh, um, I mean, now you could say this is the past. I wonder as to what extent 
a very progressive German government, which has a different um, approach towards be it digital, be it climate, also doesn't fit to an EU interest uh, because we have the Central and Eastern Europeans who have a different uh, interpretation of climate change and priorities on these things. So I guess the, the, better, the better point about Germany's future and foreign policy is we are a small regional hegemon uh, with contested leadership And we have to live up to this. So we will not be loved for what we do in kind of offering leadership in Europe and in the European Union, especially not by the French and not by the Brits. I'm, I agree that is to a certain extent a cliche. Yes. And it's also a nice, a nice exit option. You know, you can always, for example, if you talk about um, we have to be stricter on arms exports in Germany, you say, hey, let's go for European solution knowing that you will never find a European solution. So you can easily just say, oh, we have to do that via Europe. Ah, easy, you know, nice way out. Um, but, and here comes the but, I think that Germany still understands maybe even better than other European countries that it has to embed its ambitions um, into a European framework that goes into the leadership direction Christian just mentioned. Um, Germany benefits from being in Europe enormously. Yes, there has been some kind of lip service to Europe, and there has been some really kind of national interest first behavior, as every country does. But I think the overall understanding of the value of European cooperation, European the, the embedding of a nation in the European concert, is still something which, in my opinion, is, is very valid in, in Germany. And again, if I look at the Green Party, this is one of the things where I think they're extremely serious about. And Annalena Baerbock, the Green Chancellor candidate, worked in the European Parliament. So she knows a little bit what Europe is. You have many um, Green key politicians, also like Franziska Brandner, who has a European experience. Um, so I think there's an understanding that each country in Europe is simply too small to cope with the problems outside there. So you need a framework and you need cooperation because only together you can do something. This brings us to the whole debate about European sovereignty, European autonomy. We might talk about this later, but I think, yes, there is some cliche in it, yet it's sometimes an easy way out, but there's still the conviction that Germany is better off in Europe. You know, your point about an easy way out by saying, look, let's kick it uh, to the EU, let's have a European view. Um, and the easy way out of a, getting out of a hard discussion. We do that in the U.S. when we kick it to the Congress. You know, that's what Obama did about the red line and, uh, and the chemical warfare. And uh, he said, well, let's go to the Congress and see what they say. And, of course, you know, that, that's an instant death sentence for whatever that policy is. Andrea, over to you. Yeah, I want to yeah, continue on this kind of post-Merkel and if there is a bigger green role, because a lot of the things that we hear in Washington about the Greens is music to Washington's ear. So the harder line on Russia and China, opposition to Nord Stream, like you're saying, the human rights, rule of law, all of these things seem very positive. But the big question mark for many in Washington is trying to understand what it will mean for German defense policy. And the, 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 you, Claude, you talked about the 2% and how the Greens have said it doesn't make sense, it's archaic, it needs to be adjusted. It has a lot of people wondering then what it is that the Greens will do um, in terms of defense policy. 
you know, on this podcast, we've been talking about, for example, you know, Russia's recent military buildup on the border in and around Ukraine, this need for more deterrence. Um, what, you know, what, what, what do you see as Germany's role? If it's not the 2% metric, what is it that you think the Greens would be willing to do what they won't be willing to do in order to step up European security and defense? I think for Washington, that's the biggest, that's where the most question marks are. That's a difficult question to, um, to answer because, um, what I find fascinating in the, in the green agenda is on the one hand, you have a very progressive agenda on issues like digital climate, society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you have a lot of language on nuclear issues, on military operations, etc. Where I would say at the same time, <clears throat> if you look into the, the character of hybrid threats, it basically means that conflict goes civilian. And that, that we basically blur, blur the lines between the military and the civilian, societal, et cetera, et cetera. So where does it bring you if you want to kind of, you know, say, uh, yeah, we don't want to have um, kind of external deployments. That's no longer the topic. The question is, how do you provide deterrence in the 21st century? And how do you integrate into this the military and civilian means? And this is, in general, a difficult topic for the Germans. And now it will be a topic possibly then for the Greens to say, okay, how do you do this? How do you, if you, do, you don't want to blur the lines and part of your identity is not blurring the line between the military and the civilian, but the threat environment forces you to do this because they do the comprehensive approach much better than we do in Germany. Um, how do you protect German citizens and European citizens from this type of threat in the future if you still don't want to accept that uh, the security landscape has changed. Because yes, there was a, a kind of a identity element in, uh, the, in the Kosovo war. And many things from my, from my perspective, from my reading currently go back to this, how do, do we want to do this? Afghanistan has not delivered anything. These are 25, 30 years of uh, liberal interventionism. I think we have, we have learned the lessons from that. And currently, nobody is willing to do this again. We are preparing for a different battlefield. And there, I guess, we, we would need to see a learning curve from the Greens, from the Conservatives as well, because I mean, they are also looking into main battle tanks. You know, it's the Russians and there's a, there's a border in the east. We say, no, the border is basically my computer. And that's that's a kind of um, generally the not the defense establishment because that's something that we don't have. But those who need to decide on defense would basically have to to make up their mind on, and realize that the defense decisions and security decisions of the future are significantly different compared to the past. I think this is a really important point because now we have been focusing a lot on the greens and what they want, what they have to learn, or what they might have to adapt to. Um, but it's really important to say that this kind of learning process that Christian just mentioned concerns the whole security defense kind of bubble, if I might say, um, in Berlin, maybe even Europe. Um, so it's it's a general learning process. And if you look at the political parties, we initially said that a coalition government requires compromises um, from all participating parties. So that means not only the Greens have to move, the Conservatives would have, if there were 
the coalition partner, would have to move too. Or if the liberals were to join or the social democrats, everybody would have to make a compromise to find a common position. I think this is really important to understand. It doesn't mean that one party can just stay there and say, hey, here I am, and you have to do, you have to change and, you know, find a new position. This is important. Um, but this is a kind of overarching question of German defense um, that we need to rethink it. But if we look maybe just at kind of two, three case studies, just to give an impression for the more older topics, but still interesting to see the tensions. Um, the one we hinted already is China. Um, China is going to be a really interesting one because the Greens um, really want to have a, an approach which is based on a certain extent on dialogue, but very much on tougher measures. Um, so with regard to human rights, but also with regard to the economic uh, economic relationship, they really want uh, a kind of um, a diversification of the markets, of the exports, of the imports, and to have uh, to, to build a far stronger re resilience for Germany and for Europe. The conservative potential coalition partner is far more is, is far softer on that approach and doesn't really want to intervene in the economic sphere. So here we have really kind of opposing positions. The same as what you hinted already, Nord Stream 2, where the Greens have been very outspoken. You could listen to recent interviews from Annalena Baerbock, the Green Chancellor candidate, where she said, I would stop it. So whether she would do it is another question, but this is pretty much the opposite position um, of what we currently have in Germany. Nuclear disarmament, the Greens still have in their draft program, the real election program is not yet out there, it comes in June. They still want uh, to sign the BAM Treaty, uh, and want to have a nuclear uh, weapon-free world. In the same time, and that's interesting, they want to be a reliable um, alliance partner. So this is something where I at least struggle always a little bit and think like there's a kind of inherent tension. If you want, uh, if you subscribe to NATO, if you recognize NATO's crucial role, this includes nuclear deterrence. And for most of our allies, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, this particularly includes the nuclear deterrence dimension. And if Germany wants to be a reliable partner and in the same time says, but hey, let's sign the Bund Treaty, you know, this doesn't work. And so this is going to be very interesting because the Conservative Party is a strong supporter of nuclear deterrence and nuclear sharing arrangements and against the Bund Treaty. So they are kind of um, really kind of opposite position. The same again on arms exports, where the Greens want to be very strict. They want to have a new law regulating arms exports, whereas the Conservative um, leave it more, far more space. So what I find interesting, if you look at the at the recent public statements of the Greens, the draft election program and, and speeches, you have, you have tensions which have not been solved. For example, they call for deployments, um, international military deployments, they should all get a UN mandate. In the same time, they recognize that the UN Security Council is blocked. So you, you, you wonder how to solve that equation. Um, they want to be tougher on Russia, but they're not clear what that tougher means in military terms. Um, they praise NATO, as I said, but they sign. They want to sign the Bund Treaty. They want to be a reliable partner, but question um, uh, the two percent uh, or other um, NATO things. Um, they are very strong on we have to live up to our international responsibility, but in the same time, not really clear on what means that would be based and and how the Bundeswehr would exactly be funded. You could turn it in a, in a kind of constructive way and can say, this is a field in which we debate. 
let's find a compromise. So it's actually an, an, an open offer to dialogue where you still put clearly your positions. But you know, you could meet with, with your potential coalition partner in a certain area. I think what is what is important to, to, to understand is you mentioned that earlier, who is going to negotiate actually the coalition treaty, the security chapter for the Greens? Um, and what will be in the other negotiation baskets? Um, I think security and defense is important, but it is not the most important one. The most important one is climate change, full stop. Wow, that's just just uh, what a meal you both have presented to us. Uh, so much to uh, my question changed five or six times over the past couple of minutes. But, you know, I do want to highlight something that um, I think here in the U.S., in Washington, among the decision makers and policymakers and staffer and some people like that, is, you know, when Biden announced uh, that we're going to withdraw from Afghanistan, um, you know, there's, th that set off here, certainly among the group that follows this kind of thing, a debate about, you know, uh, what did we achieve and was this the right move? And, uh, you know, a lot of second guessing and the, the things that you would expect uh, because that was a pr pretty momentous decision. Um, but, you know, not a lot of people thought about the lesson and the debate under being undertaken in allied capitals uh, about the same thing. And Christian, you you alluded to it and Claude, I think you did too as well, but just to dig it, dig it, dig down in it a little bit, for Germany, going to northern Afghanistan was a huge deal. I mean, not just in terms of logistics and the military uh, deploying there and operating there, but but a real break uh, with legal precedent and traditions. And I mean, that was a big, big jump. I mean, Kosovo certainly, you know, the Balkans had did its share too. In fact, there were court cases in the early 90s uh, dealing with AWACS and all that kind of thing. But but actually picking up and moving to northern Afghanistan and staying there this whole time uh, called for a lot of um, st political strength and, and, and that type of thing in Germany to do that. And then here we are, the U.S. is pulling out, Germany will be pulling out with the rest of the alliance. And the lessons being taken by people in Berlin on this, like, you know, we'll never do that again. We'll never follow the Americans. The Americans, every time we follow them into someplace or another, it doesn't end the way the Americans said it would. And we Germans, this is something we're going to have to take into account when we look at German policies into the future and, and whether we're going to... Um, develop ourselves militarily to take part in these kinds of coalitions or a NATO thing. The lesson we're taking from Afghanistan is not a good one. So you can, you can see that. I, I'm, so my question for you is, is, is that kind of lesson being debated now? And to Greens, to the Greens, that must be, give them really some ammunition to say, look what, look at Afghanistan, you know, uh, the, if, you know, as far as the green platform, we feel that, that I, we've always been right uh, about this kind of military interventions and the shape of the German military and the role of Germany. The lesson we're taking away from Afghanistan is that we have got to not do this kind of thing again. Is that kind of debate going on broadly among defense people or even among the, the German people? And what kind of lessons will the, will the Greens take away from that? And that will really, you know, kind of, 
uh, stiff and green resolve to be, you know, to, you know, to really look askance at the U.S. knocking on the door saying, hey, let's all get together and, and go over here. That's a fascinating question, Jim, because um, I had the impression that um, beyond some articles in, in the newspapers for, I don't know, one or two weeks, once the announcement was there and then the redeployment started, uh, this big appetite for now we're going to have a discussion about uh, lessons learned from Afghanistan hasn't been there and also not a big kind of bashing of the Americans. I'm mm. not sure why that is the case. Maybe that's simply um, so two alternatives. One is it's election time and everybody's focused on much more domestic things. Second is everybody is just happy that it's over and uh, just get get the boys home uh, and the girls and then it's fine. Um, because the general appetite indeed is no longer to go on expeditionary operations. Um, so this, I have the impression that this is, for the moment, that's over. It's more about uh, having uh, a a clear guidance of how the future could look like, not with regard to the Americans, but with regard to what's the legal basis. And that's so important for the Germans, because here it's not that the chancellor can order a deployment um, very easily. Uh, there are some ex exceptions, but that's kind of, you know, normally you need to have the party, the, the, the parliament on board for these things. There are very strong rights in these things. So this the, the bigger concern is how could future deployments happen? Um, uh, but as I said before, I think this is not the biggest question that we have. The biggest question is what type of spectrum of operations will we see in the future and we will have to respond to. Maybe we are sitting at home fighting our war uh, through other means. But still, this is something that um, I guess will come up with the next coalition agreement and possibly with the next surprise that will come over us, not from the East and the Far East, but maybe more from the South, because uh, the... The, the ambiguity then is, although we we have our our issues with military deployments, uh, how do we basically want to solve the problems that we have with regard to limited statehood in Africa? Um, so you're you're back to square one here to a certain extent, and and even if we say we do it with the European Union, um, it means we do it with the French, and the French do it with American assets and American intelligence. So we are back to you. So the question is, can you, can, so we can, can put a cover over it, but at the end of the day, the same question will pop up again. And the question of the interest that we, that we basically uh, delivered to by these deployments are still not solved if we have a legal basis for it. Mm -hmm. I think we actually have various levels of, of kind of lessons learned there. I think we have the overall, the first would be the kind of overall lesson learned from the Afghanistan operation. Can we do nation building and, and all those kind of things? Then you have very many questions you, you could address there. The second, more also interesting, is the this decision to withdraw now. Um, and the kind of painful lesson for the Germans and the other Europeans was if the American leave, then we leave too, full stop. Um, and the German Bundestag had just extended the mandate. And then they had to make a kind of full reverse decision. So this was actually just a reminder Without the Americans, we can't do that. And that brings us in a kind of nice circle movement back to the European sovereignty and European strategic autonomy debate. 
Wow. What can the Europeans actually do without the US? Not much. So actually, it was a pretty painful reminder. So you have the general Afghanistan lessons, then they have the decision-making lessons. Um, and there you could even kind of think about another debate, which is Germany is also in Mali. If France were to move out, building on American assets again, we might leave also. If the French move out, we have to leave too. So this is this kind of what is the next Afghanistan? And then comes the kind of third lessons learned that Christian hinted upon. What is the future of conflict? Um, we are not going to have those kind of missions again. So what is the scenario and what is the theater and what are the instruments um, with which we will kind of deal with in future conflict? So I think the, the lessons, you could put them in various kind of baskets um, for Germany, for NATO, for the US, then Afghanistan, decision-making and the future, that there is a lot, a lot to think about. There really is. I, I think there could be, I think you guys can write a paper on this because uh, <laughs> it gets into procurement. So what do you want to be able to do? If someone said, well, we need to be able to do the next, you know, ISAF, uh, you know, the, 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 the Bundeswehr or whoever would say, no way, we've learned a horrible lesson. We're not going to, we're not going to design ourselves to do that kind of thing. We're going to stay right here, take care of our territorial defense. And then we're going to buy these kinds of things, not something expeditionary, but just another level of a lesson learned for you is um, if, if you were in Paris within the ministry of defense there, and you were trying to get the Germans more involved in helping out in, Af in Africa, you know, the Americans have screwed it up for you because the, the American withdrawal from Afghanistan has given a lesson learned to the Germans, which is we're not going anywhere anymore, whether it's to follow the Americans to X or to follow the French to Africa. So the French are going to say, gosh, we can't go to Berlin and say, come help us, because the French, the, the Germans are going to say, no way, man, we're, we've, we've learned our lesson in Afghanistan. You're pulling us down into another Afghanistan in Africa. We're not going. You know, so, I, you know, this is the ramifications are fascinating. You guys need to write about it. Over to Andrea, who's been very patient with me. Thank you. Thanks for the homework, Jim. Huh? <laughs> Jim's good at giving other people work to do. <laughs> no. Um, okay. So we've, I mean, I have a list of many, many more questions, but we're basically at time. So I do think this goes to your point, Jim, earlier that we need a whole nother episode of this focusing on, on all of these issues, German politics and, and the transatlantic relationship with and Germany and the U.S. role in it. But I do want to end on one kind of final note of kind of looking forward for, and then I recognizing that you've said it's going to take quite some time to work through coalition agreements until the new government is kind of up and running and the leader has kind of consolidated power and, and things kind of get moving again. But when you look at the potential for greater transatlantic cooperation, you know, there's a certain set of issues that people talk a lot about. Um, what, what do you think Germany would be most willing to push? So recognizing they want to do it not on a bilateral relationship, but in this kind of transatlantic European frame. What is it that Europe, that Germany might go to bat for or some of the issues that, that Germany would be willing to put its weight behind to try to tackle in conjunction with the United States? And when you look at some of those issues, it it's still difficult to see exactly where we go. So on, on China... I think there's certainly been progress, but we had, for example, Merkel with the Chinese investment agreement, which, you know, was unwelcome news in Washington. Um, there's tech, 
which is you know, really critically important, but still so many thorny issues for the United States and Europe and Germany to tackle within that set of issues. And then maybe I might be a little bit more optimistic on Russia you know, in the wake of Navalny, maybe some more movement in Germany and, and more willingness to take a harder line on Germany. I, I thought that that's a question mark. But as you said, Claude, if, if it's the Greens, they want to be tougher on Russia, but it's not actually clear what that means in military terms. So I, I, I know that there's a lot of kind of question marks in some of these big areas where we do need to do more. What is it that Germany is going to throw its weight behind um, in the you know, after September. I think what is kind of the, the, the German interest, uh, the German political and societal model is built on wealth and on exports. And we start realizing that, um, let's say, the old real economy is going to end and to die. Um, so the whole topic of new emerging disruptive technologies, blah, 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 comes into play with a mix of its geopolitical and geoeconomic dimensions. So if we want to have a part of this uh, cake, we need to negotiate with the Americans uh, because I guess everybody has understood if you wake up the morning and you have a Chinese partner in your bed, this may not be the best morning for you. Uh, then the question is, what is the space for negotiation on regulations and standards and the way we want to shape jointly, politically and economically, the order in this, in this area of technologies? And this is also a key question with regard to our policies towards China, economically and other areas of regulation. Uh, it also is interestingly an area where I guess the Germans um, are on the same footing as the Americans could be um, with regard to export controls. Um, because we have, a, we have export control issues with regard to our tanks, but that's steelware. We're talking software and other things here that are much more important for the future of conflict uh, than the good old battle tank is. So these may be areas where constructive discussion on security um, is definitely possible with the Germans. And there's an interest because we look at these topics very much as the Americans do, with a political eye and with an economic eye. Um, so we definitely have an interest to discuss this with you. Um, possibly, and I'm just thinking out loudly here, and maybe it's even not, not a bad thing to say, look, dear Germans and dear Europeans, uh, your strategic autonomy also means there are certain things that you have to deal with. And this is providing military security to Europe almost on your own. Because we Americans can't afford any longer to be 50% responsible for the defense of Europe if we also want to manage effectively uh, the, uh, the Chinese risks that we have here, which are not military risks, but systemic risks. So therefore... There is an issue here. What's the new deal uh, that we have across the landscape of risks and threats that we could possibly uh, manage a burden sharing that is no longer a military burden sharing? It's very much on, on you know, how do we survive as political systems with regard to the wealth that we would like to have, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can mix also the climate issues into that, that have an issue on regulation, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want to make it too complex. But if you want to kind of 
kind of sketch a way and where constructive discussion is possible, then it's it's this one, I would I would admit, because also the next government could be very much ready um, because the, the sensibility or the kind of the, the awareness about China and about the technology is growing and has reached a level that is far beyond uh, the clarity that we have with regard to our policy to the Russians, for example. I agree on, on those things, although I sometimes wondered when you were talking whether this is what we want to happen or whether what it is, what is likely to happen. Um, and I'm a bit worried that is, these are the things we think which would really make sense to do, um, but might not be 100% applied in political reality. Um, having said that, um, what I, I hope at least a, a new government, whatever color political parties it would comprise, would do is having a clearer stance on Germany's role uh, in international relations, uh, and then also in Europe. One of the, the weak points of Merkel, although she managed really well all those kind of international difficult leaders from Trump to Erdogan and Putin, um, she wasn't very clear on Germany's international role. She left it to the defense minister, the foreign minister, and the president of the republic, but she didn't really say what Germany's responsibility on the international scene is. Um, and my hope would be that the next chancellor or the next foreign minister might be clearer on that role. Um, I agree on the regular, regulatory issue, export control. I think another interesting one is resilience. Um, resilience both in terms of society, so um, hybrid threats, fake news and all that, and not kind of driving a wedge between Europeans and, um, and Americans and inside Europe, but resilience also with regard to infrastructure, um, uh, supply chains and all that. And the last one is, or not the last one, but another one that is interesting is all the question of rule of law, democracies, human rights, um, where I think this could be an area where greater cooperation and greater commitment would be possible, particularly if the Greens would have a word to say in the next foreign policy. So I think we could actually, there is actually a positive agenda. Um, and I hope that, I mean, in September or maybe spring next year, you know, American policies have moved already a little bit. So I hope it's not too late um, and there could still be a kind of positive basis, positive agenda to, to engage. Also, because we, we kind of, both sides are better off with a united and engaged Europe. Um, and this is something we, we should all be aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think what you, some of the things that you laid out, Claude, I mean, that those are priorities for the Biden administration also, right? It's been such a huge focus. I mean, I'm putting, you know, in the Russia kind of policy sphere, resilience is a key pillar of all of that. There's been so much talk to about rule of law, anti-corruption, all of these things I think will continue to be a significant focus. So if that's something, you know, if there is green participation and, and, um, energy and momentum. There would be quite a lot of, um, I think that could breathe a lot of life into that policy agenda. So I think that is all extremely positive. And I think that's in many ways what Washington is hoping, you know, that that with a new government will come some renewed momentum in those areas. And, and the really wonderful thing about that is they're kind of, I think of them as those two for one 
policy focuses. They're they're useful against Russia, but also against China and other kind of malign authoritarian powers. And there's a center of gravity in the Biden administration in the White House on countering malign influence. And so all of these things, I think, would be um, very welcome coming from Washington. So share your optimism that there could be some a renewed uh, momentum. So I think we are at time um, that I think we're going to have to put on our agenda, finding time to do another one of these sessions in advance of the election. I think it's just been such a useful kind of communication, sharing of ideas. This has been, I think it's like a track two in and of itself to hear the German (laughs) thinking about what's been happening. And then we get to share it with all of our Brussels sprouts listeners as well. So we'll put it on the books for something before the election again. But um, in the meantime, just a really big thank you for taking the time to join us. And it's been really a fantastic discussion.